Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, May 9, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, The Atlantic's George Packer and Jeffrey Goldberg discuss the career of the late diplomat Richard Holbrook and the critical role that he played in foreign affairs under Presidents Carter, Clinton, and Obama. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you, all of you, for coming. Um, uh, I want to jump right in with, with George uh, on this uh, on this. Uh, amazing book. Uh, I'm not saying that because we're friends and because we work together. Um, and then we worked together for years at The New Yorker uh, as well. But I, I'm saying that because I very specifically told George eight years ago not to write this book. Um, <laughs> so let me, let me start by um, acknowledging that I perhaps was wrong um, uh, in, that, in that piece of advice. Uh, but the, the question looms large, and since the book is just out, uh, I'm assuming that most of you have not read it all yet. Uh, let's just start by talking about what motivated you to devote really seven or eight years, uh, uh, in parts of, uh, parts of seven or eight years, to uh, an American diplomat, an American public figure, who did not, who was not a president, was not a secretary of state, um, uh, was uh, right below the treetops, as you, as you write. What, what, what motivated you to think that, that there was something to say about Holbrook that said something about America as well? You know, it, <clears throat> this is a book that found me rather than my finding it. So that same question was in my mind for quite a while. He died in December 2010. And within weeks, a few of his close friends sort of ganged up and said, George, have you thought of writing a book about Richard? I'd written a profile for The New Yorker in 2009. I knew him. I knew his wife, Kati. And, but we were you know, socially acquainted, but we weren't close friends. I thought, that's an interesting idea. And I was having trouble with the book I was working on, The Unwinding. I couldn't figure it out. And so I maybe was looking for something different. Katya and I had lunch. Katya's here, by the way. Um, Katya and I had lunch, and I said, would you let me have his papers exclusively with no strings attached? I thought I was asking for something impossible. And she said, you know, there are other people in line, but uh, if you can make up your mind that you want them right away, right now, yes, you can have them. So within a week, there was an Israeli moving van crossing the Brooklyn Bridge... (laughs) From Tribeca, where Kati and Richard had an office, to my house in Brooklyn with these giant black filing cabinets, like three feet wide by six feet high, with the life's papers of Richard Holbrook. And it's a good thing it didn't tip over and fall into the East River. Um, so, so you got jammed, basically. I, I was forced to. At it sounds like you're, you're just. What, what was the positive apart from the deadline? No, there was no negative. There was no negative. The but it was not clear what this book would be. I had agreed to do it before I knew what the book was. I mean, yes, the book is about Richard Holbrook, but that doesn't begin to 
tell you what you're doing. You need to figure out what is the book about. But you saw something that that I obviously didn't see when we talked about it. I I saw uh, an important American diplomat, obviously a force of nature. I knew him. Like most journalists, you can't help but have known Richard Holbrook to some degree. Uh, But it struck me as a a large project and – and writers have only so many years yep. of productivity, and fewer, you have, fewer all the time. Yeah, it seems to go that way. Um, <laughs> and you didn't, you know, you you you, yeah. you have a bunch of books stacked up in your mind that you want to write. So two two things happened. In I think it was 2014, I began to really immerse myself in his papers. Three things happened because the unwinding came out. It was finished. It came out, and I could turn to this. And I began to read his letters and listen to his diary tapes, and I was mesmerized because, first of all, he was a wonderful writer, and second, there was so much of it and so much of him that I began to realize this fills out in the most vivid, human, detailed terms a life, a career. And that's a rare thing, to actually have some access to the day-to-day thinking and action and activities of a public figure. I realized I had kind of gotten on the other side of the screen that is kind of around public figures and that even some biographies don't really quite get past. Second thing that happened was I was driving on I-84 in Connecticut one day and suddenly I I heard, and this sounds mystical and I'm not mystical or driven that way, but I heard a voice that said, Holbrook, yes, I knew him. It was a very strange thing because I, I didn't know who was saying it or what it was a part of. All I knew was I liked it. It sounded like a voice I would want to tell a story and to listen to, not the voice of a conventional biographer, dry and dutiful and sort of bored with his own project, just trying to get through the high school years. Um, no, this was like a, a yarn and Holbrook was worthy of something better than a biography. He was worthy of a yarn. And I was thinking about novelists like Conrad, who used this narrator Marlowe to tell the story of Lord Jim and of Heart of Darkness. And I began to think, Holbrook needs a narrator with some life in his voice to tell his story. And I began to write it in that way, and it became a joy because I had the freedom to tell it in an informal, direct, talking to the reader, sometimes even using the second person to address the reader with a freedom that I right. hadn't imagined. Uh, yeah. I want to come to your I want to come to your process and the style. Can I the, say the, the third thing that yeah. happened? Yes. Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> what? Donald Trump got elected. It's still sinking in. I had no idea. And and on election night, with all the other thoughts and feelings I was having, I realized that some era had come to an end and that this book was a a portrait of history, not simply of a man. Look, as as all conversations do, we'll we'll wind up with, we'll wind up at Trump, but we'll get, we'll just wait a a couple of minutes. Uh, But I, and I want to talk about the the process and I want to talk about your unique uh, narrative style, which takes a a great deal of confidence to, (coughs) to, to, Pull off. It, it is. Uh, I mean, without. I want you all to buy the book because he's my friend. But um, you should buy the book because it's really fascinating to read, and it is like the, it's an adrenaline shot. Um, and you also do something that 
everyone who reads biographies wish wishes that other biographers would do. Um, when you when you when you are bored by a particular period in a person's life, you actually write in this book. You know what? I'm not going to tell you about this because it's boring. Let's move on to the interesting stuff. And it's quite pleasing. And, and it's right. quite uh, the, the book would be nine thousand pages <laughs> otherwise. Also, the but, chapter about his. His childhood and youth begins. Do you mind if we hurry through the early years? Right, right. Because I wanted to get through them. But I want to. I want to come back to that. I want to spend a little time talking about Holbrook himself. Um, this is a fantastically complicated portrait of a fantastically complicated man. The, the warts, even the warts have warts. The greatness has its greatness, but even the warts have its warts. Uh, and and mindful that Conti's here, and mindful that, that that this can be a squirmy moment, which of course is interesting for the audience. Um, talk talk to me I'm about. Not, I'm not squirming. Well, I'm squirming okay. already. Right. Uh, talk to me about. Um, the, the, there's a Rorschach quality to this. There are people who are predisposed to think that Richard Holbrook is the greatest American diplomat of all time, who um, who are upset that there's warts in this. Um, there are other people who think that you give him his due and more than his due. Talk to me about how your view of Richard Holbrook changed the deeper you got, not only into his own papers, but into, into the hundreds of interviews that you did with everyone who knew him. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those interviews began with the person telling me the worst thing they could think of because they had been sitting on it for years and it had never left them. It was rankling them. He had in some way... Uh, belittled them or made them feel small or um, given them a sharp elbow. And that was the first thing that came out. That's what they wanted to tell me. And I had to kind of let them tell me that before I could then get past it to the other things. So those things piled up and his papers and diaries were had many obsessive passages in which he talked about uh, his colleagues in very unflattering terms um, some of them had begun as his friends and ended up as his enemies. And he, it's a man in full. I mean, he is there, I think, in, in every aspect of him. My highest loyalty is to the reader and to the truth. And so I couldn't start editing things before the reader had a chance to, to know them. We don't make people like this very often in government anymore, do we? In government civil service. Do you know America. what Hillary Clinton said to me at his apartment the week after he died, there was a kind of wake, and I just said, hello, Secretary Clinton, and she just said, right out of the blue, I picture him like Gulliver, tied down by Lilliputians. Like, that was how Hillary Clinton saw Holbrook in his last two years under the Obama administration, tied down by Lilliputians. He was huge, and his appetites were big, his ambitions were big, his um, reading, his movie going, um, his love of women, his love of adventure and travel. He, he didn't care. He, he loved to violate the sensitive feelings of bureaucrats and, um, and to make people in government nervous because he preferred the company of journalists. He didn't care. And that is something that doesn't happen anymore because you, you get fired. Right. Well, why didn't he become Secretary of State? Why did he never make, why did he never grab the, the brass ring? Because of himself, I think. Because uh, his, his talents deserved it, his achievements deserved it, and every time he came close to it, um, the 
ill will he had bred or the anxieties he had bred among the people making the decisions got in the way. For example, in 96, just after the greatest achievement of his life, the Dayton Accords, which ended the Bosnia War, uh, for which Holbrook was, you know, bore most of the credit and responsibility, that was a chance. He was up against Madeleine Albright. Um, Clinton was really weighing it. And I have this passage in the book where Clinton is literally in his underwear upstairs in the White House and Strobe Talbot is trying to talk him through the decision about who's going to be your next secretary of state while Clinton is taking a shower and getting dressed. And, well, is it going to be George Mitchell? Well, the Republicans don't seem to like him. What about Madeline? Well, not sure about Madeline. What about Holbrook? And Talbot makes a big pitch for Holbrook. This is the one who's going to bring home the bacon. He, for, just for sheer talent and being able to get your agenda done, this is the guy. And he's worth the trouble. And Clinton's listening and listening, and Talbot thinks that he's convinced him. But a couple of weeks later, the call came in, and it was Madeleine Albright. And Clinton, after that conversation, had said to someone else, and I'm, I think it was Al Gore, I don't know if he has the self-awareness to keep his relationships from being toxic. That was Clinton's hesitation. And that's a... That is a pretty... <laughs> There's a level of lacking, uh, a certain lack of self-awareness there as well. Right, yeah. right. He, uh, he, he seemed to have a deep insight into everyone but himself. Um, <laughs> That's a Washington disease, by the way. <laughs> I know. So I think that hesitation and Hillary Clinton's strong preference for right. a woman, for Madeleine Albright, made the difference. In 2000, I'm fairly certain he would not have been Al Gore's. In 2004, I'm fairly certain he would not have been John Kerry's Secretary of State. In 2008, I think that was the best chance to become Hillary Clinton's Secretary of State. It's not certain, but I think it was the best chance. And with Obama, it was never in the cards. So it was never in the cards. Obama didn't really know him. um, But the people around Obama didn't like him. Susan Rice, who was Obama's top foreign policy advisor in that campaign hated him. Anthony Lake, who was the other top foreign policy advisor, went back to the year 1962 with Holbrook. And that story of their friendship curdling into something like hatred is a big plot or subplot of the book. So Obama was surrounded by people speaking ill of him. And his younger people distrusted Holbrook because they saw him as part of the establishment. And Obama was going to defy, as you so memorably recorded in the Obama Doctrine, it seemed like his biggest adversary in foreign policy was the Washington establishment. And he saw Holbrooke as part of that. But he couldn't ignore him because there were other people saying he's the guy who gets things done. So in a couple of days after the election, he summoned Holbrooke to Chicago to interview him. And Holbrook didn't know whether this meant maybe I'm up for Secretary of State. There were already rumors that it would be Hillary Clinton. <clears throat> Basically, he could not afford not to talk to Richard Holbrook. And the meeting didn't go well. Uh, after about half an hour, Obama, was, his attention was drifting, and he, I'm quite certain, had begun to take a bit of a dislike it's a very, very vivid scene in the book. I and um, 
Then the rumor was Holbrook would be Hillary's deputy, and then that got shot down too. And suddenly, once again, just like with Bill Clinton in 92, Richard Holbrook didn't have a job. Hillary Clinton, who loved him, I think, and saw his great value and was quite loyal to him, and vice versa. Their relationship is, is a very impressive thing in the book. She insisted that he be in the administration. So they gave him the hardest job of all, which was the war in Afghanistan. I want to come to Afghanistan, but let's go all the way back to the beginning, because this book is not just a biography of an American diplomat. Uh, It's not a a group biography of the foreign policy establishment. Um, It's very self-consciously an historical arc. Um, Holbrook, there are three main episodes, foreign policy episodes in Holbrook's life. Vietnam, Bosnia, Afghanistan. Right. Give us the theory of the case, the way you organize this book, and what and what it all means for American foreign policy and for America's role in the world. Well, as the, the writer of the book, I had a problem, which is that leaves out some fairly important things in American foreign policy, such as the Cold War standoff with the Soviet Union, which was the most important thing for 40 years. Holbrook wasn't really interested in it. It was too abstract for him. It was too, in some ways, static. He wanted action. And so he asked for Southeast Asia as his first post out of the Foreign Service uh, Institute at age 22. He, he wanted to see a war. He, had, he was a reader. He read Hemingway. He read Stephen Crane. He wanted to know what he would be like in a war. He had that And he loved Catch-22, by the way. I think it was his favorite book back then because he had a dark, ironic sense of humor. So it begins in Vietnam. And what he learns in Vietnam is the people who are in charge don't know what's going on. To know what's going on, you have to get down to the ground, to the lowest level. And that's what he did. He became an an AID worker in the Mekong Delta, where the Viet Cong were at their strongest in 1963. He saw the war right up close. He heard the shooting every night. He drove roads that were full of ambushes waiting for Americans. And he saw immediately, because he had that unbelievable intellectual clarity, that we were losing and that our firepower was actually working against us. When we came in with helicopter gunships, we created enemies more than, more than we killed. So from the very start, he thought we should change our tactics and then we should change our strategy. He didn't give up on the war for a few more years, but he, I think he learned you have to see it up close for yourself in order really to know what's going on. And he also learned that um, the military is often wrong in their assessments and we shouldn't let them drive our policy. The diplomats should be in charge. But this is a battle he fought and often lost throughout his career because more and more our foreign policy became militarized. So I think those are big themes that get set up in that in his early years in Vietnam. He also had a talent for bringing himself to the attention of important people and rising up. He rose very quickly. He played tennis with Maxwell Taylor and and William Westmoreland, and then with Bobby Kennedy back in Washington, and had dinner with Joe Alsop and Avril Harriman, and he very quickly became part of, sort of a junior member of of the establishment, even though, and this is an interesting thing, he was not a wasp, 
and right. the establishment was a wasp right. establishment. Right. We'll go into that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, he was Jewish, but he didn't think about that. And in fact, didn't even know it for quite a while. And he was raised at Quaker Sunday School in Scarsdale because his parents, who were refugees from Europe in the 30s, did not want the old world to follow them to America. They wanted to wipe the slate clean and raise an American son. And so they named him, they gave him waspy names, Richard Charles, where it's his first two names. Holbrook is a made-up name. His father's name was Abraham Goldbrake <laughs> from Vitebsk. And when he arrived in New York, he became Dan Holbrook, MD, with an E at the end, which anglicized it even more. So there's a kind of erasure that happened at the beginning of his life that also cut him off in some ways from his origins. He never talked about his family. He didn't like to. You hardly even knew he had a family. A brother, this was an unsettled man. A restless man, a hungry man, and a man who did not look inward, who didn't like to look in at himself. But, but he, with the amazing dichotomy here is that, and in reading the letters that you, you include, as a foreign policy analyst, he's unusually acute very often. Yes. So take, take us from Vietnam. To tell us what Vietnam meant to him, and then take us to the peak yep. of his career I mean, in Bosnia. What, what could have happened to him is that that Vietnam experience could have been so shattering because the very first uh, issue he works on is the worst thing that's ever happened to American foreign policy, uh, a devastating war, huge losses. Um, a huge overreach based on a faulty premise. A faulty premise that we needed to fight communism everywhere it was expanding and that this essentially nationalist movement in Vietnam... You say he wasn't interested in the Cold War, but Vietnam was a manifestation of great power. It was part of the Cold War. I don't think he... What I mean is he wasn't interested in the geo-strategy of the Cold War. He wasn't Kissingerian in the the structural... He did not see the world as a chessboard. He saw the world as, in some ways, as a battlefield. Um, he He saw people. He saw... Other people. Well, that makes sense because the, his weapon was his force of personality. Kissinger's weapon, let's say, it was the force Abstract of intellect. Abstract intellect. Yeah. With Holbrook, it was a deep curiosity about other people, an ability to listen. And, and I think he never listened to anyone as hard as he listened to refugees or villagers who had just had you know, their houses bombed. He had a kind of attraction and deep sympathy for desperate people. So the Vietnam experience, maybe that's the other thing it did. It made him into a lifelong humanitarian who truly cared about people in unhappy places. And that's shockingly rare in government. Right. It's really rare. So after Vietnam, what could have happened was it could have shattered him. It didn't. And he didn't really look back at it very long. He was moving forward. He did not think Vietnam meant the United States had lost its legitimacy as a superpower. What he wanted was to restore our legitimacy to the kind of liberal internationalism of his heroes, that post-war group who created NATO and the United Nations and um, the structure of the post-war world. Those were his gods. And so he saw himself as pursuing that approach to the world. America must be in the lead. We must be involved 
around the world, even problems in countries whose names we can't pronounce will eventually become our problem if we ignore them. And no one else is going to do it. And we're Bosnia, the only ones Bosnia who can. Bosnia for him is the perfect right. expression of right. this. So there's a few steps in between. Obviously. He's Jimmy Carter's secretary, assistant secretary for East Asia, where he gets very involved in refugees. He goes to Wall Street when the Republicans come to power. He spends 12 years on Wall Street making money, but mainly waiting for the next chance. And then Bill Clinton comes in, and Bosnia has just begun this terrible war in Europe that looks like genocide. And Holbrook did the same thing he did in Vietnam. He went to the ground. He, as a private citizen, before he had a job, he got into Sarajevo under siege on New Year's Eve 1992, spent just 24 hours there, but it was long enough for him to realize that this is a war of aggression and hatred. It's not some ancient tribal feud that we can't understand and should just stay out of. He wanted us involved. He came back to Washington and told his friends who did have jobs in the Clinton administration, we need to be involved. Clinton didn't want to hear it. Clinton was focused like a laser beam, if you remember, on the economy. And Bosnia was a problem that he didn't need. For two and a half years, the war bled and 100,000 people died. And finally, in the summer of 95, Holbrook, who was about to quit because he had been kind of locked out of the, the policymaking and had also really made enemies in key places in the administration, he was going to go back to New York and, and go back to Wall Street. He also had just remarried, Kati Martin, and they were going to start a new life together in New York. That was the moment when all the, the, the forces in Bosnia were coming to a head, the Srebrenica massacre, the Croatian offensive that turned the tide of the battlefield. And suddenly it looked like if there's going to be any moment for America to get involved, this is it, with diplomacy and force, both NATO bombs on Serb positions and Richard Holbrook shuttling between the three Balkan warlords and not just bullying them, as some people think, but persuading them and listening to them and talking all through the night to Slobodan Milosevic over heaps of lamb and rice while Milosevic got drunk and Holbrook pretended to sip his Slivovitz and actually was staying sober so that he could get the better of this guy, finally brought them all to Dayton, Ohio. That was Holbrook's idea. He did not want Paris or Geneva for the talks because diplomats love Paris and Geneva and don't want to leave. He, he knew that... <laughs> That after a couple of weeks in Dayton, you'll do anything. <laughs> you know the French. The French uh, representative would be going nuts, and I would calibrate this when you're at the Dayton Barnes and Noble, by the way. But just... right, they're they're proud of it, and rightly so. He and he put all these leaders on a military base outside Dayton, where he practically had them like in prison. And I th I see it as like a, a Beckett play. A, Kind of a spare set with these. A Beckett play with like a TGI Fridays, basically, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. With Joe, Pac, Packy's Sports Bar and yeah. Grill. Um, and these people would keep running into each other in the parking lot. And that's how the negotiation happened. Right. And after three weeks, the war ended. Right. 
how much of that success, and obviously it's a success with shadows on it, but we can, you'll go into, you go into that in the book in some detail. How much of that success was Holbrook's force of personality and creativity? How much of that was the fact that America was then at its height? Somewhere between the collapse of the Soviet Union and the first Gulf War, unmitigated success that later led to more complicated issues, right. um, and Bosnia, this is the period. This is it. This is this is the this moment is the when high, Holbrook, a yeah. person like Holbrook, could feel, wait, I'm back in the late '40s, early '50s, when we're doing things, right? And, and when everybody recognizes that we're the people who do the things, and and that Europe is not going to solve its own problems, right? This war, there's a was, kind of condescension there. Yeah, I mean, a European diplomat told the Americans, "This is the hour of Europe." In other words, leave this to us. Yeah. Stay out. This is not yours. Europe didn't have the answer. And, yeah, this is the high watermark of American power. But is it Holbrook or is it just the... It's both. It's it's history and Holbrook. One can't go without the other. You need both to be aligned, and everything was aligned in Bosnia. You had the Soviet Union was gone. Russia was kind of a basket case. So that even though they wanted to defend the Serbs, their orthodox brethren... Uh, they just didn't have the the clout and the will to do it. Britain and France by then had kind of faced the fact that, that the, they had no answers for Bosnia. They had UN troops in Bosnia. They had no answers. Bill Clinton was finally forced, maybe for political reasons, because he w- it was becoming a political problem for him, to get over his own aversion to an, in involvement. And he had this guy, Holbrook, who had the confidence, the energy, the shamelessness in a way, because it took a certain, like, a, a, a willingness to stick his neck so far out. The word his family wouldn't use is chutzpah, but that's what it is. The chutzpah. <laughs> the chutzpah is the exact word I was looking for. Um, to do this high wire act before the eyes of the world press. Right. And... Um, I don't think there would have been a Dayton without Holbrook. I really don't. So then, just in the interest of time, carry us forth from the high water mark to Afghanistan, which is his final, right? The final act of the play, which is a much more ambivalent experience, right? And so, Bosnia seemed like the beginning of a new era where our ideals and our power were in sync and we could solve problems that we could not solve or didn't want to solve before. It actually was the beginning of the end of that because within a few years, there was 9-11. There was the Iraq war, which Holbrook supported, I think for largely political reasons. Um, and then there was Afghanistan, which at first seemed like a success, but because of our mistakes in Iraq and because of our uh, inability to understand the country and why the Taliban were... Because uh, Afghanistan is an independent variable, it's, like it's many It's its things. own thing. And what it reminded Holbrook of more than anything was Vietnam. A rural insurgency, a corrupt partner for America in Hamid Karzai and his government, and a sanctuary for the enemy in the, next, in the neighboring country, in this case, Pakistan, all of those ingredients were hauntingly familiar to Holbrook. Obama offered him this lemon. You can be my special <laughs> representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Good luck. 
Holbrook was invoking Vietnam all the time because he thought there were lessons here. There was the lesson of don't believe everything the military tells you. There was the lesson of you need to be willing to talk to the enemy. You're not going to shoot your way to victory in a war like this. And there was the lesson of what we really need is to clean up a corrupt government so that Afghans want to resist the Taliban. They have something to resist it for. Obama didn't want to hear about Vietnam. He felt Holbrooke was lecturing him and condescending to him. Was he? To some extent, yeah. Um, He would hold forth in the situation room and people would roll their eyes and some of the younger people thought, wow, this is cool. There's this famous you know, legend Richard Holbrook in here talking about the savage intersection of politics, policy, and history. You can imagine how that went over with Obama, who, you know, wanted, what can, what can you tell me about this issue? Let's not waste any time. They were just a complete collision of generation and temperament. And uh, Obama, I have to say, humiliated Richard Holbrook. He would say to the people, if Holbrook was on the video screen from Kabul holding forth, there's a scene in the book that's quite painful and it's recorded in Holbrook's diary. Obama turns to the others around the table and says, who talks like this? <laughs> Which is a kind of aside, but it's also the end. It cuts him. It cuts him off and everyone now knows we don't need to worry about Richard Holbrook because the president doesn't like him. Holbrook was like the last person to realize that the president didn't like him. Right. And that, I think, gets to a, a flaw in him, an inability to see himself. He saw other people with brilliant Clarity. I keep thinking about the color of his eyes. They're this kind of crystal blue that's always sharply focused, but they, he did not look inward. And so it took him a long time to understand at all what he was doing wrong. His friends would say, don't flatter Obama. Stop it. He doesn't like that. No, I'm not flattering him. What are you talking about? But by then it was too late. He had lost his, uh, his influence. He had also lost it in Kabul because he tried to get rid of Hamid Karzai through an election and didn't have the light touch. He was just kind of stumbling through it. And Karzai outmaneuvered him and got reelected. And that was sort of the end of Holbrook in Kabul. Was Holbrook's inability to move Afghanistan a sign of his own diminishing power, something that had shifted in Washington, or the, the, the nature of the Afghan conflict itself, or the decline of uh, the energy behind liberal interventionism or all. Yes, yes. Which one? Talk, go into the liberal interventionist part because that's why, I mean, this part of this book is about the last liberal interventionist. Yeah, he was the last soldier in the the liberal international war. Um, Define define what liberal intervention is in your mind, what what, what we're talking about. In my mind, it means... A willingness to use all the tools of our power, including the military, um, but in a way that we think is for the, the benefit of others as well as ourselves, for an order, a world order in which it's not a zero-sum game. It's not just a, a cage match between a couple of boxers. It's, it's actually an order in which everyone can thrive but only under the 
guidance and the protection of American power. That's right. basically what it comes to. Right. And that was all, that was fading. Iraq spent that that authority, that, that legitimacy, that energy, and and Barack Obama didn't really want to be that president as you told the world with your article. Well, the, and Libya comes to mind as a classic case where we could, we, it could have been more of a Bosnia success, but there was so much ambivalence around it yes. that never tested the theory. And Syria, of course. We stayed out, which and, and it's hard to imagine Syria being worse than it is. So there is no good and answer. And it's hard to imagine, it's hard to picture Holbrook sitting still while Syria is going Absolutely. on, especially in the 2012-13. I think Holbrook would have been just frantic to get involved in that war. because Talk, talk it, about it, what Holbrook would be thinking today. Not that you understand what he would be thinking today yeah, necessarily. And we yeah. want to be modest in how we project out. But, right. but <laughs> liberal interventionism. Or the idea that America, at the very least, is a shining city on a hill and a model for other countries, or that we have something unique to bring to situations like Bosnia, like Afghanistan. Right. Uh, is the liberal interventionist idea dead and buried? Killed not only by Trumpism, obviously, but are we, are we past that now? I mean, let's just look, at, because it only exists if people are invoking it and pursuing it. If it's in a book or if it's in a... Atlantic Monthly article, uh, then that's not where it lives. That's where people think about it. Where does it live? In the, in the minds and acts of people with power. Look at the Democratic campaign right now. Is anybody talking as if America has a role to play in the world? They're distancing themselves from capitalism in some cases. Capi- so that's capitalism, further down the road. Yes, yeah. Trump has repudiated democracy, and the Democrats seem to be having a lot of criticism about capitalism, but they're not interested in foreign policy. They're not talking about it. It's as if when they become president, they're not going to have to deal with it. They're talking about student debt, about wealth tax, about infrastructure, about global warming, but not about the problems of other countries as our problems. So I don't see it anywhere. And on the Republican side, what we have is a kind of... We're trying to imitate China and Russia. We want to be just another nasty great power that snarls at at people and tries to bully them into doing what it wants. Was he an American exceptionalist? A somewhat skeptical one. Because anyone who'd lived through Vietnam and then again through Afghanistan could not believe that our founding ideals had a magical power to bring good to the world. He was pretty shrewd and practical about when and where you use that power. But he did fundamentally believe, I think, and would continue to to today, because it was the only worldview he had, that there was something um, necessary, indispensable, as Madeleine Albright, I think, said, about America. And so I think he would be absolutely horrified but also perplexed by what's happening today because it isn't part of his lexicon. It's not his vocabulary at all. Right. Um, There are some questions from the audience uh, that concern um, your writing method, and I want to get to them. I I, I should note also, by the way, 
um, that the Walter Isaacson review and the cover of the Times Book Review that was referred to before, um, it's a positive review. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have brought it up. Um, uh, not only is it positive, uh, Walter compares you both to uh, Graham Greene and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. Well, let's keep um, going. Which, Tolstoy. Well, no, yeah, you know, yeah. the, 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 pro- the problem is it's... Um, this is going to cost me in our next salary negotiation, I know. <laughs> but um, I, I want to I ask you one question. Many people have read, obviously they've read you in The New Yorker, they've read you in The Atlantic, now they, they, they've read many of your books. Talk about that choice, because when I read this in an early, earlier version, I was struck by the force of your confidence in deciding what is and what is not important for um, a biographer to do. And just to talk, talk for a minute about... How the particular place you are in your career right. that allowed you to make that bold and somewhat controversial choice within the sort of the priesthood of biography. You know, we we've been doing this about the same amount of time and and in the same place. I'm actually a couple of years younger than you, you are. are. <laughs> Did you all know that? By I just the way? want to point that out for the record. Um, it's something accurate on Wikipedia, by the way. <laughs> if you need to look. Um, I felt that I had figured out how to write the conventional piece of narrative journalism in The New Yorker or The Atlantic and the work of narrative nonfiction at the length of a book. I had done that enough that I'd figured it out. And once you've got there, you really need to move on or else you start to get a little old and tired and predictable and... So the last two books, The Unwinding and Our Man, I felt this restlessness with the form. I want to do something different, but I also realized that the subjects required me to experiment. The Unwinding is a portrait of half a dozen Americans in different parts of the country as they live their lives through the last few decades. And there's no obvious nonfiction model for that because they don't know each other. They're Stories don't intersect. The only thing that unites it is the flow of history in America and essentially the theme of the loss of our democracy and our middle class. I looked to fiction because I am a lover of fiction and a failed novelist um, for a model. And I found one in John Dos Passos and his USA trilogy, which is almost forgotten today, but it was on the cover of Time magazine in the 30s. Um, and it's a brilliant three-decade portrait in fiction of America at the beginning of the 20th century. So I use some of his techniques of cutting between people's stories and of putting in these little short kind of poetically written portraits of the famous people of the era. In my case, it was Newt Gingrich, Oprah Winfrey, um, Colin Powell. So... In this case, the problem I felt was biographies are boring. That was my fundamental feeling. Biographies cannot It help. takes confidence. I mean, I felt that way for <clears throat> It takes a certain amount of confidence to get to that realization, by the way. I just live in fear of losing my readers. Like, the anxiety is I'm going to be boring my readers and they're going to put the book down or never pick it up. I think every writer should feel like, you know, they're out there on the savanna and there's a lot of predators around because <laughs> if, if you're confident that predators everyone... Predators will find you boring. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Too boring Too to boring eat. Too boring to eat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So what you need to do is figure out a way to say, eat me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So 
Anybody could tweet that out, decontextualized, by <laughs> right, the way. Right, right. Yeah. It'll be done. Yeah, I'm sure it um, will. So I wanted to find a form that would not allow for boredom. Right. Even the life of Richard Holbrook would have these, these lulls and the, the kind of dutiful, monotonous march through every facet of a person's life, which is the problem with every biography. Um, instead, I began to look again to fiction for models, and uh, Conrad came up in my mind. I love Conrad, and he has a narrator, Marlowe, who is his storyteller and is like telling a yarn based on what he knows of Lord right. Jim or of Heart of Darkness. Right. And so I thought, why not have, when I heard that voice, Holbrook, yes, I knew him, that's when I knew this is how to tell the story. Right. As if the narrator was present for the entire thing, somehow an eyewitness without really telling you how, never revealing my the dull machinations of how I research this or the interviews. I, there's no interviews recorded in the book. They're in the, the notes, but they're not in the book. Right. There's no research in the book. It's a story being told by someone who just seems to somehow know this story. Right. And with that freedom, I could skip pieces of his life that didn't seem to bear do, getting into too much detail. But I could also dive very deep with a lot of vivid imagery and scenes and dialogue with the, right. the parts that were dramatic, like Vietnam, Bosnia, Afghanistan. Right. So, right. Let me ask you this question from the audience, and it loops back to something you were just mentioning. Why did you choose to call the book Our Man? Yeah. I had a hard time coming up with the title. Um, I began to think... That is a very Graham Greenish. Yeah, it's uh, got a novelistic uh, feel, but I was thinking Our Man in Kabul. But he wasn't only Our Man in Kabul. He was also Our Man in Sarajevo. He was Our Man in the Mekong Delta. So how do you do that? Well, maybe just Our Man, but that seemed too short. (laughs) And then I thought, no, what it really means is he kind of embodies something about America. He's ours. This is us. For better and worse, this is a, a figure who contains, because he's a big figure, a lot of multitudes, including the idealism, including the overconfidence, including um, our, you know, our vast appetites, all of that. Stay, stay in, the, in the green mode for a minute. Uh, is he the ugly American or is he something more than the ugly American? I mean, there are moments when... Well, the quiet American. The quiet American. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, the quiet American. Right. But well, talk about, the, talk about yeah, both I mean, poles on the... So the quiet American is Green's devastating portrait of an American in Vietnam in the 50s who believes he's there to do good and is actually just getting people killed. The... The innocent. Cooper was more you know, knowing than the. He was the, far the, more knowing. The, yeah. He read The Quiet American before he went to Vietnam. All of them did. And. What do you say? All, all of them? Tony Lake did. David Halberstam did. It was like in the air. You had to read The Quiet American if you were in Vietnam in the early 60s. They would talk about it in the cafes. And they, it made them uneasy because the portrait of the American in it is, is pretty savage. Green Green did not like Americans. He did not like Americans. He thought we were. Um, so shallow that we did not know good and evil. That was the worst sin of all. Um, Holbrook wrote in a letter, I just read Quiet American, not too bad, not too good, not me. So he was immediately aware that this is not who I want to be and it's not who I am because I'm a more 
he was a little more hard-boiled than that. He, had, he was a little bit more tough about reality than the uh, high-minded killer right. in uh, The Quiet American. Right. Yeah. Um, here's another question from the audience. What surprised you the most while writing this book? <clears throat> How hard diplomacy is. You know, I didn't know what diplomacy was. I just, um, you know, people disappear into an elegant room and eight hours later something is signed or it's not signed. What happens in the room? I never had any idea. It turns out what happens in the room is what happens in most rooms. Two human beings encounter each other and it's all kinds of things. It's funny, it's storytelling, meandering. There's a lot of... uh, accidents and, and, and detours that you don't intend. And then there's confrontation and there's anger. And, and then you have to do it again and again and again. And when I think of all the hours Holbrook spent with Milosevic in the palace in Belgrade, when I think of all the 16-hour flights to Islamabad and Kabul, 10, 15, 20 of them, it's just... No, you draw Hard. this remarkably. It's torture to think about being in a room for so long with Milosevic. I mean, you get that. Yeah. That, that comes through. Although he's... You have to want something so badly. Yes, yes. And you have to be constantly reading this opponent and trying to figure out how do I exploit a weakness? What does he want? How, do I, how far should I go? How do I bluff him? Bluffing is a huge part of diplomacy. Holbrook made the mistake... So Hillary Clinton brought him to the Oval Office in 2009 to meet, to sort of establish a bond with the president. And it didn't go well. And right away, Holbrook said, well, yes. The premise well, is faulty. <clears throat> yes. In the case of It was the, not going to happen. Yeah, it was already yeah. too late. But Clinton saw the need for it, was trying to do it. Holbrook began talking about the strategy in Afghanistan. And he used the word bluff or maybe even deceive. And Obama said, We don't do that in this administration. That was Bush lying about Iraq. We don't do that. And both Clinton and Holbrook were thinking, what are you talking about? How do you think we got... That is diplomacy. How do you think we got Milosevic to Dayton? Um, But Holbrook, of course, tried to back off, and that's not what I meant, Mr. President. But that's a huge part of diplomacy. It's human. And I, I I think the thing that most struck me was how especially foreign policy... Because you don't really know what you're doing. You don't understand the problems of the world. You're just, as Holbrook once wrote in his diary, we have 2% of the information we need at any given time to make a decision. So it kind of comes down to your character. And it's more of a drama of human character than I ever imagined that it would be. Right. Um, Go to something directly. There's a question here. I'll I'll ask you this question and then I'll add on to it. Uh, Is there any equivalent to Holbrook in the Trump administration today? Who comes closest? Um, I'm asking that because the audience wants me to. Um, It's a a reasonable question, but let me add on to it and and ask you this. The the question that arises from much of what you've said tonight is uh, there's an arc to the to the story, yes. uh, peaking at Bosnia and coming back down, yes. uh, not maybe quite where we were in 1974, but coming back pretty far down. And then Trump gets elected. Does Trump represent the end of pretension that we have a role to play in the world, other than the role that any venal superpower plays, transactional superpower? Which is like, superpower. what can you give me? Well, yeah, 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 you yeah. Know, yeah. China think, and Russia. The, I think yeah. there is a sort of uh, brutal honesty 
in the Trump foreign policy, if there is such a thing, that is not totally out of sync with where Obama was going. There's a bit of continuity there, not in domestic policy in any way, but in foreign policy, there was a scaling back. And in Ben Rhodes' book about his time in the White House with Obama, Obama basically says, we wouldn't have done Rwanda. We're not here for saving people if it's not going to be in our interests and if Congress is going to give us problems. So very cold-eyed about things. And Trump has taken that and turned it into like a, you know, a war cry or a, just a, a, a right. mad vision of, of us as this, this uh, yeah, ugly actor. I would say the, the, maybe if there's anyone, this is going to sound horrible because they're polar opposites in both worldview and in personality. John Bolton is the only figure in the Trump administration who has the sort of the experience under his belt and the confidence that he can operate in government and the clear vision of where he wants to go to compare with Richard Holbrook. But I'm going to end the comparison with that. Right. No, no, no. But it makes, but it makes, a, it makes a certain amount of, of would sense. Would you have said Bolton, too? I would have said Bolton as, yeah. the, only, as the only possibility right. in, that, in that case. And it's interesting. If you want to talk, here's a question, um, and, and I'll add a, an Iran component to it. Did Obama and Hillary Clinton have any foreign policy success? Uh, the the <clears throat> Iran overlay is uh, I supported the Iran deal. Think it probably could have been tougher. And as you're speaking, I'm imagining, I'm ima- and I covered this. I'm imagining Holbrook negotiating with the Iranians. Yeah. I think he would have been more formidable. He really wanted to. He wanted to talk to them about Afghanistan, and he was not allowed to. Right. Right. Um, that wasn't Hillary Clinton's, so we can't give that to her. That was John Kerry's, although right. it began, I guess, with, with Hillary Clinton's yeah. sanctions. But um, Iran looked like the biggest diplomatic success since Dayton, and maybe even bigger, because in a way it was more central to our interests and to right. world politics. It's gone, so you can't say it was a great achievement since it didn't survive. Um, I think... It would have been fun to see Holbrook uh, in the same room with the Iranians, for sure. Um, I think Syria, in a way, would have engaged him even more because it had the desperation, um, the, the incredible complexity of all these different forces at work, the human suffering, and uh, the consequences, which he would have seen. What happens when, right in the heart of the Middle East, you have several million refugees and all the neighbors getting embroiled in an endless conflagration. It's not, we're, we're not going to be able to avoid it consequences, even if we have the Atlantic Ocean between us. Um, you said something um, that, 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 that uh, we, we've talked about this in the past, but I think it's probably very interesting to the audience. You said that Trump in some ways represents a continuation of Obama foreign policy. Go into that a little deeper. Yeah, I don't want to make too much of that because Obama believed in alliances. He believed in agreements and treaties. The Paris Treaty is the best example of that. He believed in multilateralism and in he did not think we should simply walk away until everyone else caved into our demands, but he had a skepticism 
about that long tradition, starting with Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, continuing with Kennedy, exploding with Johnson, and then kind of resumed with Reagan and Clint and Bush and Clinton, basically that there's a special role for America to play. Um, I don't think Obama thought we were that anymore. We had really expended a lot of our ability to solve problems by wasting our, you know, our legitimacy. And we also had a financial crisis and other things. So are you still way, a liberal you know, interventionist? I'm a pretty chastened one. How can you not be? I mean, I spent enough time in Iraq to yeah. feel that anyone who just demands that tyrants fall and democracies flourish needs to spend time in a place like Iraq. Let me um, ask you one more question from the audience, and then we're going to close. And this is very interesting because you're writing about dozens, if not hundreds, of characters, secondary, tertiary characters in this book who are alive, interviewed. Um, What's the reaction so far? People in this room, obviously, um, are in this book and have strong feelings, one direction or another, about Richard Holberg. So talk about the first few days of this book being out. It's been weird because... A lot of people haven't read the book yet. They've read the reviews of the book. And the reviews have been weird. They've been personal toward him in a way that surprises me. They're not reviewing the book. They're reviewing Holbrook. And first of all, I'm not responsible for what reviewers say about the book. And I don't like some of the things that they've said about him and the book. But most people who've read it have said to me, it's fair. It's true. It sounds but like him. But everybody has their own feeling about him and his life who knew him. And I could never do full justice to anyone else's view. This is the truth as I tried to record it with a ton of work, ton of research. Um, and I'm grateful after all these years, for, to have had the chance to do it because I think it was well worth it. And I'm very grateful to Kati Martin for having the faith in me to give me those papers all those years ago um, because I could never have written this book without them. And it's now in the hands of the readers. It's not for me to say anymore. Very good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.